support for this episode comes from The Current Report. From data privacy to the future of TV, retail media, and beyond, the world of digital marketing is constantly in flux, so how can you keep up? Well, The Current Report is there for you. Each week, marketing leaders on the cutting edge give you the latest insight. If it's creating a buzz, they'll be talking about it. Subscribe to The Current Report wherever you get your podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from another podcast. The world's most valuable resource, it's actually data. Our data, based on our behaviors, is frequently being gathered, tracked, stored, and sold. So what does this mean for us? Join host Rafi Krikorian for season two of Technically Optimistic, where he'll take you on a deep dive into how our data is being used and what we can do about it. From social media feeds to foundational human rights, Krikorian leads us into territories both familiar and unexpected with openness and genuine curiosity. New episodes of Technically Optimistic drop every Wednesday. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to Decoder. I'm Neil Patel, editor-in-chief of The Verge, and Decoder is my show about big ideas and other problems. Today, I'm talking to Pat Gelsinger, the CEO of Intel. Now, I've been excited to have this conversation for a very long time, ever since Pat took over as CEO a little over a year and a half ago. After all, Intel is a very important company with a huge series of challenges in front of it. It's still the largest chip manufacturer by revenue. It makes more chips than any other company in the United States. In fact, there are basically only three chip manufacturers. There's Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, or TSMC, it's in Taiwan. Samsung is based in South Korea, and there's Intel here in the United States. But Intel also famously missed out on smartphones and mobile. And over the past decade, companies like ARM and TSMC have pioneered a new way of designing and manufacturing chips that's basically turned the industry upside down. See, Intel's dominance came from doing everything in-house. It designed the chips, it manufactured the chips, it invested in the research to design and manufacture the next generation of chips. But now companies like Apple license basic chip designs from ARM, customize them for products like the iPhone, and have those chips manufactured by TSMC. That means TSMC can stay focused on developing new manufacturing technologies for a wide range of customers. And it's been able to push that tech well ahead of what Intel has been able to do. So the Intel Pat took over was struggling and losing ground in a variety of markets. But over the past year and a half, Pat's restructured the company, turned over almost all of its leadership positions, opened a new line of business that will directly compete with TSMC and make chips for other companies, including Intel's competitors, and generally tried to reset Intel's famous engineering culture around engineering. He's also done a lot of handshaking with politicians, as both the United States and European governments react to the chip shortage and the reality that TSMC is based in Taiwan and will be in the middle of tensions with China. So Pat lobbied hard for the United States to pass the Chips and Science Act, which will put $52 billion in subsidies towards chip manufacturing in the United States, a lot of which will go towards Intel. He's expanding Intel's chip fab in Arizona, building a huge new fab in Ohio, and another one in Germany. In addition to that, he's shipping products. We spoke the day after Intel had announced new CPUs and importantly, new GPUs. Pat has big plans for his product roadmap, and we talked about all of it. Now, this conversation is in the weeds. Pat is an engineer's engineer, and this man is not afraid of the details. So here are some notes and definitions. There's a lot of them. We'll put them in the show notes as well. Feel free to take these slow. I know it's a lot, but I promise it's worth it because this conversation is in the details. 
Okay, so Pat talks about IFS, that's Intel Foundry Service. That's the part of Intel that will make chips for other people. He mentions Raptor Lake. That was the code name for Intel's new Generation 13 processors they just announced. He also talks about Sapphire Rapids. That's the code name for Intel's fourth generation Xeon server processors. He talks a lot about 20A and 18A. The A is Angstrom's. 20A is a rebranding of what was Intel's five nanometer process. It's scheduled to debut in 2024. 18A is a rebranding of Intel's 5 nanometer plus node, which is due out in 2025. We talk a lot about packaging. That's the last step of semiconductor fabrication. It's where you take a block of finished chip material and put it into a case. That case is known as the package. It's the plastic thing that you think about as the chip, but that's the package. We also talk about wafers a lot. When you make processors, you make hundreds of them at once on a giant silicon wafer. You've probably seen people holding the big wafers. You print all the chips on the wafers, and then you cut them up into individual chips. The process by which you print the chips on the wafers is where all the technology and innovation happens in chip manufacturing. Right now, the cutting edge is called EUV. That's extreme ultraviolet lithography. There's only one company in the world that makes EUV machines. It's called ASML. We talk about ASML quite a bit. If you want to make the highest end chips, you need to go talk to ASML. We also talk about ribbon FET. That's a new transistor technology that Intel developed. Pat brings up ISVs a lot. That's independent software vendors. He talks about PDKs. That's the process design kit. It's a set of files that have the data and algorithms that explain the manufacturing parameters for a given silicon process. We also talk about EDA tools. That's electronic design automation tools. Basically, it's the software you use to design and validate your manufacturing process. Okay, got it? I know it's a lot. You can go back and listen to it again. You can just stop and read it in the show notes. I had to read it twice. But all this stuff is important because it really helps you understand what Pat is talking about, both at the strategic and at the tactical levels. It's a good episode. He's really into it. All right, Pat Kelsinger, CEO of Intel. Here we go. Pat Gelsinger, you are the CEO of Intel. Welcome to Decoder. Hey, my pleasure to join you today, Neely. Uh, there's a lot to talk about. You just announced some new processors and GPUs at your developer conference. There's the CHIPS Act, which passed back in July. You're building some new fabs in the United States, most notably in Ohio. But I want to start at the start. Uh, you've been back at Intel, I think it's been a little over 18 months now. You had been at the company for a long time. You left. I don't think that was the happiest departure for you. You were the CEO of VMware. Why did you come back to Intel? Well, as I say, you know, you know, I had grown up at the company. You know, I started at uh, Intel at 18. I joke that I went through puberty at Intel. I started here so young and, uh, you know, really grew up at the feet of Grove, Noyce, Moore, you know, what I call the trinity of Intel and, you know, had deep interactions with all of them. And as we were pondering this coming back, and I'll say, you know, my wife and I, uh, initially we talked, you know, we were uh, reached out to about joining the board of directors of Intel. It's like, okay, so we're interviewing, meeting the board, and then just before Christmas, they uh, asked if I'd consider being the CEO. And it was like, ah, as I joke, it ruined my Christmas. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, all of a sudden, all these emotions of leaving and should we come back? You know, what would it take to turn the company around? And I had written, you know, 30 years earlier that I wanted to be the CEO of the company. And uh, I thought that vision was dead many years ago. But fundamentally, the decision boiled down to three things. One is restoring the iconic intel. 
the company that I grew up in. You know, second, I believe Intel is foundational for the technology industry. A healthy industry is part and parcel to a healthy technology future. And third was rebuilding the uh, Western uh, supply chains and uh, fabs and you know all the things associated with chips and U-chips and balanced resilient supply chains. As I say, the uh, oil reserves define geopolitics for the last five decades. Where technology is, I believe is more important for the next five decades as every aspect of humanity becomes digital and everything digital runs on semiconductors. So this is really important to the world. And it was really for those three reasons that uh, Linda and I took the dive and says, yeah, we're going to come back and turn it around. And I do I do say it was Linda and I because uh, anytime you take on an assignment like this, uh, you better have your spouse, significant uh, <laughs> other aligned with you as well. So there's a lot in your answer there. There's restoring the iconic Intel, which is really, I think, about the engineering culture of the company. I want to dig into that. And then there's chips and supply chains, which is really about geopolitics, right? There's no United States Strategic National Reserve of chips. There's kind of just Intel. That's the answer for a lot of what's going on lately. I think there's a lot of pressure and there's a lot of redefinition of what it means to be the CEO of Intel in the job lately, yeah. as I've watched you doing that job. Let's start with the engineering side. When you came back, you gave a big talk, which went out to the public, but it was very obvious the audience for this talk was Intel's employees and engineers. It was kind of like a storming talk about resetting the engineering culture, letting go of some baggage, reinventing the company. You've now been in charge for a little over 18 months. Were your instincts about that culture correct? Was the biggest problem the engineering culture that you needed to reset? You, it really sort of boils down to two things, not just one. One is, you know, I'll say the culture, the methodologies, you know, the processes that we were using. 20 years ago or so, we had established what was called the TikTok methodology, right? This risk-managed cadence of execution. I came back, and it was undone when I was gone. It was like, why did we stop? It was super <laughs> successful, Let's go do it again, you know, put it back in place. And, you know, how we have a consistent life cycle management across the uh, company, how we have quality A-step uh, tape outs, you know, move bugs and software emulation and everything's done that when an A0 goes to fab, boom, you know, there's no reason it can't go to production. And, you know, this kind of disciplined, data-driven, you know, we had stopped doing OKRs, objectives and key results, right? People wrote books about that as other companies adopted it. We invented it at Intel <laughs> and we stopped doing it. I think most listeners of Decoder think that Google invented OKRs, by the way. You're saying Intel invented it. Yeah. Well, guess what? It wasn't. It was Intel, right? Go back and read <laughs> Andy's book where it first began. And, you know, so a lot of it was, you know, what's old is new again. Obviously, you know, the world has moved on, engineering, the valley, so much of technology has moved on. So it's not like we're just repeating what we had before, but many of the core concepts need to be brought forward, modernized, and reestablished up and down the organization. You know, the other aspect is, is that, you know, we inherited a lot of products in flight. Much has been said about uh, Sapphire Rapids and some of the difficulties we have had on getting that out. That project was started five years ago. 
It's in flight. I can't reset the methodology of a product that was begun five years ago. And, uh, you know, it wasn't started well. It had way too much complexity in it. Had three major new systems interfaces in that design, a new CXL, a new PCI Gen 5, and a new DDR5, and no backups on any of them. Right? It was like, how did we take on so much risk and technical challenge you know, in one program? But I can't undo those products. We have to sort of gut it out and get those finished, even as we're launching the new products on the new methodologies and the new uh, approaches as well. So I say, you know, hey, we have to sort of flush the pipe of those projects. We have to finish them, get them done, get the quality culture back, even as we're starting the new projects with the disciplined culture that we expect and are going to be executing on for the future. And in the middle of that, you know, not only do we have to rebuild the internal culture and execution, but we have to rebuild our customers' confidence. And I say in some cases, you know, we've earned our customers' distrust, right? You know, we've not executed the quality, you know, the capacity, you know, the performance that they would expect from Intel's products. So, you know, we're re-earning their confidence that they can build their business on us. And I'll just say, you know, we have made so much progress in a year and a half, but there's a lot of work to get done. And, you know, if you would go ask our top 10 customers and they would say, oh, a defined shift, right? You know, they're back to focusing on quality, on engineering, giving us transparency on schedules. We're rebuilding our confidence, but that's a lot of work to get done, right? You know, for what was largely sort of a lost decade in that respect. So, you know, that to me is, you know, well underway, not finished, but, you know, every day gaining more momentum to be that engineering culture that people can build their businesses on and have confidence in our competitors' fear, right? When Intel says something, you know, we're going to get it done. On that note, so was it the engineering culture that you needed to reset? That instinct was correct? Or was it something else that you found in the last year and a half that was a bigger surprise to you? I'll say the collection that I talked to, you know, OKRs and discipline, performance orientation, data driven, you know, that collection of things. I'll just, you know, I just summarize it as an engineering centric culture is what we needed to reestablish uh, inside of the company. You know, we just had our innovation conference and, you know, my shirt was the geek is back, but geek <laughs> was spelled in ASCII binary. So, <laughs> you know, everything about us is that uh, engineering technology centricity of uh, what made Intel great and what made it famous and what made it this iconic, you know, technology driver. The company that was going to rebuild Moore's Law and be committed to it, as I like to say, you know, Moore's Law ain't dead until the yeah. periodic table is exhausted, right? You know, we're just going <laughs> to, you know, keep driving physics, inventing molecules, you know, and finding uh, new ways to keep advancing the state of the art of technology. So this is a, a key point. The, you mentioned the TikTok cycle. You said the words risk managed, which I want to push on a little bit. But the TikTok cycle very famously was Intel would invent a new processor design, and then you would move it to a smaller process node, increasing its efficiency. Then you would have a new process design, you would move it to a smaller node. And this was a very easy way to sort of consistently increase performance of processors over time. Implicit in that is Moore's law, the idea that transistor density is going to double every 18 months. Intel is going to invent some new process technology to make that happen on that cadence and de-risk it because the processor design is proven. That has not happened for Intel in the past decade, right? This lost decade, the packaging improvements, the process node improvements have not happened for Intel on that cadence. They've happened elsewhere. They've happened at TSMC. They've happened at Samsung. 
and part of it is that Intel didn't take enough of a risk on some of the process technologies. Uh, actually, the opposite. Okay. We took too much risk, right? And we failed, right? You know, and it's a managed risk methodology in that sense. And, you know, when I came back, we said we're going to do five nodes in four years, an audacious mm -hmm. plan that we've laid out. But even inside of the process technology development now, it's a very risk-managed, cadence-focused uh, delivery where essentially we've parallelized the 10-7 team from the 4-3 team, from the 20-18-A team. And while they build and leverage each other, you know, I have even within my process uh, technology development now essentially three parallel teams that are now, I'll say, becoming their own TikTok execution uh, environment. One time many years ago when I was running a project for uh, Intel, uh, Andy Grove came and he joked at the finish of it. He said, I gave Pat an unlimited budget and he exceeded it. <laughs> you know, and I went to Ann, our head of technology development, Dr. Ann Kelleher. You know, I said, you have an unlimited budget, but you are going to deliver five nodes in four years. We are going to get back to unquestioned process leadership. You know, some might look at that and say, hey, you know, that's just nuts. Nobody has ever achieved that cadence in the history of the technology industry. And there really is sort of three things that we've done. You know, one is we've just put the teams, the capital, et cetera, because a lot of innovating at transistors is you run more wafers. Right, run more experiments, have more you know ideas going on. So we gave them the capital, you know, we gave them the R and D to go forward. You know, secondly, we created this model of parallel execution even inside of the TD teams, so that the 20A and 18A team is now operating independently of the 4-3 team. Third is we had a whole bevy of component research ideas, you know, inventions that were in our you know period that we stumbled where, you know, we had a whole bunch of ideas that we could quickly put into production. You know, the other thing then that we complemented that with was, you know, Intel had gotten somewhat arrogant. You know, we were, hey, just drop the equipment off at the front lobby and we'll take <laughs> care of running it, right? Where, hey, the industry had moved rapidly and we needed to learn from those capabilities, right, and bring those you know, experiences. We are now leaning into those uh, relationships at scale. I meet regularly, for instance, with the CEO and the CTO of ASML, the EUV equipment provider. We are leaning into those relationships to garner their best learnings into our development, and we've committed in a big way to EUV. And that was a fundamental mistake that Intel made. Yeah, this is the bet I was saying. I think it wasn't a risky enough bet on EUV. Yeah, and we were betting against it. And because of some of the other, you know, we had taken a lot of risk in Intel 10. You know, and we were, you know, hey, we don't need EUV. We'll go to advanced quad patterning uh, of the, the lithography. We were doing other things to avoid needing EUV. Those things were panning out. So when we did it, it might have been a good decision. But as those things slipped, we were on the wrong side of EUV. Right. And because of that, TSMC grabbed the UV, which, by the way, Intel created. Right. We drove <laughs> the creation. Man, how did we not monetize and leverage a creation that we created? You know, at a minimum, we should have had a parallel program on a UV that says, huh, if we got this wrong, you know, if we get some of this quad patterning and some of the other techniques that we were doing, you know, and self-aligning uh, wrong, hey, we should have had a program, but we didn't. You know, we were betting against it. How stupid could we be? So now, hey, we've leaned into the EUV relationship very aggressively. You know, that's going quite well for us. You know, Intel 4.3, our first volume deployments 
of EUV are going extremely well uh, currently. And then it's you know seminal to our 20A, 18A uh, programs, which are going uh, very well. You know, I uh, joked with uh, Peter Wenick. I said, send all your best engineers you know to my Oregon site. And he came back and he says, well, Taiwan's closed. I can't send any engineers there because of COVID. So that's easy. So uh, we had a, a couple of good jokes. But, you know, hey, we are learning from what they've done with TSMC and Samsung. We're benefiting from that. But we're also getting back to what we do well. And for instance, at 20A and 18A, you know, we have the ribbon FET. Intel has done every major new transistor architecture at scale in the last 30 years, and we are on it. You know, our power via backside power delivery, you know, we're embracing EUV and we're leveraging, you know, a sustained leadership that we have had for decades in advanced uh, packaging. And these together are what give us confidence that a Moore's Law is alive and well for the future. And uh, we have the, all the work going on beyond 18A that will allow us to keep saying that through the end of the decade and beyond. My joke about Decoder is that it's fundamentally a podcast about org charts because I think CEOs <laughs> mostly mess with the org charts. Like that's like mostly what CEOs do. I'm just looking at some quotes. You said at the Evercore conference in September, 70% of the leadership team at Intel is either new to the company or new to their role. That's turnover you instituted. Why'd you decide to turn over that many folks? You know, as I came back to the company, it needed to be refreshed. You know, we had people that were good leaders in jobs that they, quote, weren't qualified for, that, you know, they hadn't the experience level. They were good leaders, but they weren't in the roles that fit their skill sets. We wanted to bring people in that uh, gave us, you know, skills and business uh, capabilities in the areas that we needed that people like, you know, on stage today, Greg Lavender, our uh, CTO. I had worked with him closely for a number of years, and uh, he's just been, you know, I'll say resoundingly enthusiastically accepted as a key leader at the company to lead our software and CTO efforts. Uh, you know, bringing somebody like Nick McCune in, you know, he's taught everybody in networking for the last 25 years. Now he's running networking for us. I mean, these are just, you know, super quality uh, leaders. Our general counsel, you know, she's been GC at four other firms before coming to Intel. Dave Zinsner, my CFO, you know, he was, uh, you know, CFO at Micron before here, lives and breathes the semiconductor industry. You know, people who I have confidence that they can go, you know, lead this incredible turnaround. You know, the, our government affairs leader who was seminal in getting the CHIPS Act uh, across the line, he was undersecretary of commerce in the uh, Obama administration. Okay, he knows how to run government affairs. So, you know, just every one of these different uh, aspects of the company, I want people that when I put them in that chair, it's sort of like, you know, go in that direction and they know what to do, right? You know, we have so much work to get done, both for Intel as well as for the industry, you know, that we don't have time to say, well, let's do some on-the-job training. <laughs> Boom, we need to go <laughs> and go uh, quickly. And we reorganize the company in a very specific way, right? You know, around six business units. We're going to have empowered business units, you know, strong functional uh, units, a single voice to the customer with our uh, sales. I have, you know, Christoph came from a customer. Uh, Christoph Schell, he was at HP before coming here. He sat on the other side of the table. He knows what it's like to be sold to, you know, by Intel, the good, the bad, and the ugly uh, of that. Uh, so super qualified leader for that. So just one by one, people who are unquestionably qualified for their jobs, you know, and in many cases, I'd say, you know, I don't think there's a better person on the planet 
for the jobs that I've, you know, been able to make, you know, as part of the team. Clear, simple organizational structure, and then a lot of accountability and expectation for what they're going to achieve. And then my job is to essentially knit them together as a team. So you said six business units, but then you've got one face of the customer. Are you organized in divisions or as like product lines? The six businesses for us, um, you think about, you know, I call it the core four, CCG, our client business, data center and AI, our data center business, accelerated computing and uh, graphics, and then networking and edge. Those are the core four. And then the other two are Mobileye, obviously, which we hope to IPO, and then uh, the Foundry business, which is really quite distinct and uh, unique. So those are my six uh, business units. And then the key functional units, manufacturing, uh, technology development, uh, software and technology group, and then uh, design engineering are the big you know, four uh, functional units that support all of those six business units, but one face to the customer. You know, when we show up at Dell, hey, they're buying our accelerated computing, they're buying our clients, they're buying our servers, you know, they're buying our uh, networking. And, uh, you know, when I show up at Amazon, hey, they're becoming a foundry customer, you know, they're buying our data center products, accelerated computing, one face to the customer, even though those business units, which are accountable for those P&Ls, and one of the things I also did was to essentially have them as reportable segments. So the financial community gets to see how we're doing and clients, data center, uh, et cetera. And and I'm holding them accountable, not for spending targets, but for operating income targets, right? You know, run it like a business. You know, you're responsible for the business. (laughs) If they say, how much can I spend, Pat? I said, I don't know. Tell me what your business plan is for next year, right? Because I'm only going to give you operating income and operating margin targets for your business that you're running. Every structure has inherent trade-offs in it. It sounds like you kind of cleaned the slate and drew a new structure for Intel. What are the trade-offs of this structure in your mind? Well, clearly, you know, when you look at a structure like ours, you know, I've had people say, hey, Pat, well, why are you launching these new business areas, you know, like accelerated computing and graphics? Why don't you just finish fixing the core, right? You know, just go get client and data center and the process technology done. Why are you worrying about that uh, new area? You know, hey, Foundry, sounds great, you know, but why don't you wait to launch that until you get the process technology leadership back in place? Those would be some of the criticisms that have come up. And I say, hmm, those are fair criticisms. It's not my strategy, right? You know, I want to bring accountability. We've had a large networking business, but it was never treated like a business. It was always submerged. Uh, We were doing integrated graphics for two decades, but we were never getting a monetization and then ISV presence and GPUs have become a big computing uh, platform in its own right. And we were never treating it that way, even though, in fact, we were spending most of the R&D to satisfy, you know, that uh, segment. You know, one of the seminal decisions that I made was to become a foundry. As I joke, there's three types of semiconductor, you know, manufacturing company, big, niche, or dead, (laughs) right? And hey, we are way too big to not be big. Yeah. Right. You know, for that. And, you know, with that, we have to be at scale and there's only three companies that can do advanced processing on the planet, TSMC, Samsung, and Intel. None of the, you know, none of the foundries before I showed up 
were Western foundries. And we said, we're going to build and balance this global uh, supply chain, and we're going to open the doors to our fabs to allow us to be unquestionably at scale, to be that foundry partner for our customers. Because you know so much semiconductor innovation is occurring, design innovation is occurring outside of the Intel fabs. Right? You know, hey, you know, why aren't we enabling that ecosystem to work on us? Our customers want us to take advanced packaging technologies and make them available for some of their chiplets as we're going forward. And thus, we've announced uh, this idea that our foundry is going to be a wafer foundry, but become a systems foundry. And what does that mean? You know, we said a systems foundry has four components. One is you got to be a good wafer foundry. So I am so committed that we're going to be a leadership process technology company again. You know, secondly, you know, we're going to enable our advanced packaging so people can put the pieces together, right? You know, on top of that, you know, we're going to have a rich ecosystem of standards-based chiplets, and we're driving the UCIE chiplet architecture so that you know you could walk in the lane and say. You know, I have a couple of components of TSMC. I want to combine that with a couple of your chiplets, Intel. I need this power component from TI and uh, this I.O. device from Global Foundries. And since you have the best packaging, I'd like you to assemble them be my supply chain. And the answer is yes, because the rack has become a system and the system is becoming an advanced package. And we're going to be enabling that ecosystem. And then the fourth component is the foundational software pieces that go against it. And obviously, with our One API initiative, we got more software in that than anybody else in the industry and enabling that against these core platform components. So we said, hey, we're going to be a great wafer foundry, but we're also going to usher in the systems foundry era as well. So, you know, that's the path that we have laid out. And, you know, generally, it feels pretty good. We're getting more and more resonance to that approach. And at, you know, the innovation conference yesterday, I had uh, video testimonials of TSMC and Samsung, along with Intel, on this shared initiative around uh, standardized chiplet architecture. So that's a big decision. I want to push on that decision. That decision also directly plays into the geopolitical nature of your role, which we talked about at the beginning. But let's just abstract into the classic decoder question for one second. How do you make decisions? What's your framework? You know, clearly, you know, we have laid out a strategy. And to me, you know, that strategy, it's not a one-year, one-quarter strategy. You know, this is a decade-long strategy that we have laid out. We've called it IDM 2.0, you know, that we're going to rebuild manufacturing, the engineering, uh, culture, process technology, leadership. I understand it's Intel strategy. I'm asking you, Pat Gelsinger, how do you make decisions? But now let me go forward here because, you know, my decision-making is first and foremost to deliver on that strategy, right? Because I am not making decisions about the next quarter. I am making decisions against that decade-long strategy. And to me, that's the high-order bit that I have laid for the company. But also then, you know, as I'm measuring these trade-offs, well, do I do this or this or someone like that? You know, that's my North Star. And I am going to be super consistent on that. And then secondly, you know, in setting that North Star was building the agreement with the board of directors. This is an expensive journey. Right, you know, understand we are going to spend tens of billions of capital to go execute that journey. So I needed to make sure I had their alignment 
and I have to keep checking in with them. So part of my decision making is make sure the board is on board. If I, you know, could be against that uh, direction, <laughs> you know. And then I'd say, you know, third is, hey, I'm a data driven guy. So you know, if you walk into a meeting with me, right, and you don't have data, just leave. Right. <laughs> you know, if you don't have data, don't even bother showing up. And this is a very Grovian principle from, you know, hearkening to uh, Andy Grove. I want data and I want your opinion. And then largely, you know, it's not a consensus process, you know, but largely I want to build agreement, you know, to that direction across my leadership team. And we're going to openly debate, you know, which is sort of the next principle. You know, we're going to have open debates, open discussions. You know, the meeting is in the meeting, right? We're going to talk about it, you know, and when we leave the meeting, you know, we're going to have had the real conversation that enables people to go do their jobs, having participated in the decision-making uh, uh, process. So, you know, that's sort of how I think about and I make decisions in the context of both, you know, how I treat the board, but also how I then work with my uh, leadership team. And maybe the last piece is, you know, hey, I'm a fairly detailed guy. <laughs> I can tell. Just from, just from this conversation, I can tell. Hey, bring the engineers in the room. I want to know the real trade-offs down in the bowels of the company. And the more that I understand how those things play out, you know, I think the more competent it enables me and the leadership team as we make these decisions. Because you know, technology companies, I believe, should be led by technologists. You know, you, you can't make decisions on these things looking through a spreadsheet. You know, they're much more intuitive at the trade-offs of financial, you know, technology, products, and uh, markets. So actually, I want to ask you on that, and I, I really want to talk about Foundry Services, and I really want to talk about your new chips. So let me ask you a philosophical question about that real quick. You said you're really data-driven, but chips are a long-term business, <laughs> and you just said you have to make some intuitive decisions. My feeling is that data can really only tell you about the past. That if you actually want to invent the future, you have to go invent the future kind of on your gut. How does that play out inside of Intel for you as you think about chips, which are a really, really long-term business? The, the past and the data needs to inform the future. Let's just take an example. You know, we're working on 18A, right? And I have regular data updates. And when you're developing a new process technology, you're fighting defect density and transistor performance, right? You know, you're just always pushing the envelope upward as you're trying to converge to the process technology targets. History has shown us that we can get so much percentage per quarter improvements on those two vectors. Now, the actual transistor design that's going into 18A, we've never done that before. This is much more intuitive, you know, right? New structures, new science, new chemicals, new physics is going on. But, you know, in our history, we've only ever been able to do 5% per quarter, right, improvements, right, on that. <laughs> hey, you know, so team, right, if you came in at 4% this quarter, I want to know about it, right? Oh, 6% this quarter? Ooh, we're looking pretty good, baby, right? You know, because right? <laughs> so that's where, you know, the, the data of history guides the intuitive invention of tomorrow. You know, and you know, this applies across many domains. We know, for instance, when we're doing a major new microprocessor design, this point in the design cycle, you know, we need to be within 15% of our power performance target, right? Because we've never been able to get more than that, you know, in the last six months of the design. So if you're not there, I got a problem. And that's where I say, you know, history and data informs the invention and the intuition of uh, tomorrow. And hey, sometimes, you know, it just is new. You don't know. 
right? And, you know, and some of these things like, uh, you know, on our graphics uh, development, you know, we thought we could scale the integrated software stack into the discrete performance levels. We were wrong, right? You know, they weren't plumbed with the bandwidth, the performance, the latency that we needed. And so, uh, hey, our graphics, we stumbled out of the date largely because we had assumed the first generation of our software could be better leveraged than it was. I'll tell you what, the second generation, we ain't making that mistake. Right? We make it, <laughs> may make a new mistake, but we're not going to make that one again. You know, so that's where I say, you know, the data of the past informs the intuition and the development and invention of the future. We need to take a break, but when we come back, Pat and I talk about Intel's role in national security. Stick around. Support for Decoder comes from Mint Mobile. Imagine you're at a very fancy, expensive restaurant. And as you're browsing the menu, wondering how you'll afford anything on it, you notice the filet mignon is a mere $10. At first you think jackpot, but then you immediately think, wait, what's the catch? Now what do suspiciously cheap steaks have to do with your cell phone bill? Well, we're used to seeing quote unquote great deals from overpriced wireless providers and also thinking, what's the catch? But with Mint Mobile, there is no catch. For a limited time, their wireless plans are just $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan. You can get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just $15 a month. Go to mintmobile.com decoder. That's mintmobile.com decoder. Cut your wireless bill to $15 a month at mintmobile.com decoder. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on an unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. We're back. Let's talk about Foundry Services and your role as sort of a, a geopolitical leader now. There's kind of no other way to describe it, right? You came back to Intel. You have done a lot to reform the structure of the company, the culture of the company, the engineering leadership of the company. But I've watched you over the past year and a half. Boy, you've talked to a lot of politicians. Boy, you've <laughs> been at a lot of events with President Biden. Boy, you lobbied hard for the Chips and Science Act. That act passed in July. It's $52 billion for chip manufacturing in the United States. There's not a lot of companies that make chips. Like Intel is going to receive a lot of that. Part of it is you have to do foundry services just to live up to the, the policy nature of the bill, which is more chips you made in the United States, not just Intel chips. Are you seeing that role for Intel? Like you're part of the geopolitical drama that's playing out over chips and particularly TSMC, which is in Taiwan. You know, clearly it's part of you know, what we signed up for and what I signed up for when I came back to it. But I view it somewhat from a different lens than you've suggested it here. We've used the phrasing geographically balanced and resilient supply chains. 
to say, hey, you know, we shouldn't have unique, extreme, acute dependencies on individual suppliers for something that important. And it's not like TSMC isn't going to be part of the semiconductor supply chain a decade or two from now. Far from it. You know, they are critical, built a great ecosystem. But we shouldn't have acute dependencies on individual geos, locations, et cetera, for something as important to the world. It's like we have one oil reserve in one country and, you know, <laughs> no, right? You know, we need to have a multitude of oil locations and refineries and of different energy sources over time because energy is foundational, you know, to every aspect of human progress. Well, similarly, you know, if you sort of, you know, go back to my earlier comment, technology, the digitization of everything is affected every aspect of human existence, how we connect right now, you know, how you live in community, your social networks, your healthcare for the future, every aspect of your existence is depending on semiconductors. So let's make sure we have a globally balanced, resilient supply chain for semiconductors and the economic benefits of that. Why are we moving these manufacturing jobs uniformly offshore? No, these are good jobs. We want them here for the economy. And then you look at national security. Of course, we want our supply chains for national security. And that's a statement if you're in Asia, U.S., or Europe, right? You know, these things are foundational, you know, to the nature of the role that nations have across the globe. So we've stepped into that uh, since I've been back in a pretty aggressive uh, manner. And it's the right thing. You know, it's like, yeah, this is good for Intel. And I am not, you know, hesitant to say that, but it is the right thing. And when I have interacted with, uh, you know, political leaders in the U.S. and in Europe, you know, like one of the conversations uh, with one of the European political leaders, we should only get involved where there's market failure. Well, hey, we <laughs> used to be 80%. Now we're 20%. Europe used to be 44%. Now you're 9% predicted to go to 5%. If that's not market failure, tell me what is for something so foundational to every aspect of the economy, human existence, and uh, national defense. Of course, this is important. So, you know, we've leaned into something and said, this is really important to the world. And as the leading technology supplier in the U.S., of course, it's going to help us. We should be the national champion. We're half of the semiconductor manufacturing in the industry. You know, if we're not healthy, there's no hope that we can turn this around. <laughs> so this is uh, this is my follow-up question. You've now said national champion. This is my follow-up question. I talk to other CEOs and executives from other US-based huge tech companies and they think of themselves as global citizens, right? They're mm-hmm. huge global companies. They have massive footprints around the world. Some of them have massive footprints in China in particular. They don't like the idea that they are the national champions of the United States. You just said it yourself before I even asked you about it. Is that how you think of Intel? Is it one of the, like a national company of the United States? We are a global citizen. You know, I manufacture, right, globally, and we're very distributed across the world. And I have a presence in Europe. We have presence in Asia. We have presence in China. You know, we are a global citizen in that uh, sense, and we're quite proud of that. At the same time, you know, when we look at our uh, U.S. economy, yeah, I want the U.S. economy to look and say, wow, this is really important to us because we only have one of these in the United States, and we're deeply invested in Europe, and there is no other leading-edge manufacturer in Europe other than us. It is really important to the future because leading-edge manufacturing 
you know, hmm, that's going to be essential for AI, for high-performance uh, computing, for advanced communications. It is that important. So, you know, I believe that we need to be both. We need to be proper global, you know, citizens. You know, I personally uh, chair the U.S. Chamber of Commerce to China. Why? Because that relationship is so important. But we're also deeply invested in our partnership in Europe. We need a uh, globally resilient supply chain. I believe if we've created a manufacturing network that you know, has supply chains balanced across the globe, it enables world peace. Right? Because we have acute dependency in one area of the world. Hey, minor provocations become major right, responses. They have to right at that level. So it all makes sense when you tie those pieces together. I need to make sure this is a great business. I'm very committed to you know, having the majority of our manufacturing in uh, US and Europe, and we're absolutely committed to being a proper partner in the global supply chains of the world. You are expanding in Arizona. You just had a groundbreaking in Ohio. That's a major initiative. Neither of those are going to be done for years. How long until the majority of your manufacturing is done in the United States and Europe? Well, the majority of my manufacturing is already in the U.S. and Europe, right? You know, we have a large facility in Arizona, a large facility in Oregon uh, today, you know, a smaller one in New Mexico, and then we have a major fab in Israel and a major fab in Ireland. You know, we have some in Malaysia, Vietnam, and uh, China today. But the majority of our manufacturing footprint is already in the U.S. What we don't do for the world is foundry for the world, right? And that's, you know, like the Ohio site, uh, as I was, uh, you know, we had a number of CEOs from some of the other fabulous uh, companies there. And I says, you know, that fab module right there, I want to put your logo on it. And I want to say <laughs> made here, right? You're going to put an AMD logo on the side of an Intel fab? Hey, if they choose to manufacture with us, I will be thrilled to do that because it's the right thing at that level. And these are large investments. They are important for technology. They spawn, you know, technical communities. We opened the new module at our Oregon facility. And uh, we had Senator Wyden there and uh, Senator Merkel, Governor Brown. And they gave me a plaque showing this location before Intel and this location after Intel 40 years later. And uh, we named it after Gordon Moore, the Moore Center, just a super emotional moment for me, you know, to be able to honor Gordon Moore that way. And before it was a field, and now it is a tech metropolis with Google and Microsoft and Intel and this big center location and ASML and applied materials and air products. You know, it's just this exploding metropolis of uh, technology. And it is the right thing for these communities. And there's such a pent-up enthusiasm for Ohio as the Silicon Heartland, right? For exactly that reason, because it's not just what I'm going to build there, and it's going to be big, right? You know, we're going to manufacture for lots of companies, and I'm going to be excited about it. But it's how it draws all of these other technology companies, because we're building the water, we're building the electricity, we're building the roads, we're building the tech pipeline in those areas. So, you know, it is just good. All right. I got to, I'm sure your people prepped you for this question. I've heard a story like this before. It was in my home state of Wisconsin with Foxconn. Yeah. There's nothing there. <laughs> I was just there. There's nothing there. <laughs> Are you actually building this factory? You know, it was fun because uh, when we uh, were doing the groundbreaking, you know, the secret services, okay, send the earth movers in now. 
right? So literally, <laughs> but the, you know, right, you know, the groundbreaking, I mean, you know, we, we are moving dirt, you know, we're building a... Uh, oh, Foxconn moved a lot of dirt, man. Are you actually building a factory? Oh yeah, absolutely. Okay. When is it going to come online? You know, it takes about four years for one of these factories to come online. So our objective right now is 2026, you know, that we would start uh, producing, you know, from it. So it's online. But my bigger objective isn't just that I build the first two modules, which was what I did groundbreaking for a couple of weeks ago, but that as this entire movement and our foundry services build, that I then go build module three, four, five, six over time. You know, that's the vision, you know, that we have laid out. But yeah, building's underway and uh, we're pretty excited to get it in place. What process node are you building? It will be at least the most advanced technology nodes. We are building these as EUV capable fabs, you know, so our 20A, 18A, and you know, the ones that come beyond that. Now we may choose to have some capacity there for some of the older nodes as well, you know, like uh, Intel 3, you know, some of the automotive products that we'll manufacture, et cetera. So, you know, I expect that this becomes a major manufacturing location for a variety of nodes, but it will be at least able of our most advanced technologies there, you know, being manufactured. And obviously when you build a new node, you know, a new factory like this, you want to equip it with all of your latest and greatest insights for your next generation process technology. And in this case, you know, to build a site that's EUV capable is a, you know, a big deal. I got to ask you a hard question here. Uh, the CHIPS Act was passed in July, 52 billion. It was really tied to the Ohio plant. I think right after it was announced, we had the groundbreaking, Biden was there, the whole thing. End of July, Intel announces a 5% dividend increase to shareholders and a $4 billion reduction in capital expenditures. This is where the criticism that the CHIPS Act was a huge subsidy for Intel, the American taxpayers now funding a dividend to the Intel shareholder. That's what it feels like. It should, shouldn't the CapEx have gone up and the dividend have gone down? Uh, two things there. You know, one is we actually only slightly changed our gross capex for the year. You might recall that we were also able to announce like our semiconductor co-investment program. So we talk about gross capex versus net capex. And so we were able to bring our net capex down, which is what we carry you know, essentially on our balance sheet. But we are having a success for some of our capital offsets. We are you know, having, uh, I'll say, more success for that. You know, when we initially set our net capex targets for the year, you know, we didn't build into it the success that we've had in establishing this Brookfield. So we've actually only changed the gross capex. And most of that was driven by equipment pushouts, right? Where the equipment supply chain has drifted out. So from my chair, you know, I've not changed my capital investment uh, uh, policies hardly at all this year. Now, some of it is, I mean, you always are working these things and supply and balance and so on like that. So gross CapEx, and we, you know, communicated that. Now, a couple of press people uh, continue to say, hey, you know, you took your uh, net CapEx down. It's like, what you really care about from this conversation is what the gross capex is. And that had very minor change. And the only reason it changed was because of equipment delays. On the dividend side, you know, we've continued to have a dividend policy that hasn't changed. 
So we've been running this dividend policy of having a quarterly dividend, right, and uh, regular increases in that dividend level. So, you know, to some degree, the news would have been had I not done a dividend, right, because we've been doing a dividend for many, many, many years over time. And, you know, I understand some of the uh, critiques that have come back to us as a result, but neither of them have any foundation. Well, I look, I'm not allowed to invest in tech stocks, so I, I can only cosplay as a tech investor. But if I'm an institutional holder of Intel, getting, you know, a tiny bit of cash back every quarter as part of my dividend versus seeing the company invest in the long term roadmap, I'd rather see the investment. Why, why couldn't you make the sale of we're going to actually reduce the dividend and push out into the long term plan that you have said is your North Star? Yeah. And, you know, what we've said to investors, you know, when I came back into the job, we are going on an aggressive capital build out campaign and we're going to help with capital offsets to make those investments. And the reason for capital offsets, remember, is if I was building these facilities in Asia, they would be substantially cheaper than if I was building them in the U.S. or Europe. So we've been very clear, hey, if I'm going to build at this level, they have to be competitive. I need capital and tax offsets to make sure they're competitive. You know, second, we're going to find creative ways to fund that level of capital, right? You know, so I do, you know, $5 billion of uh, dividends per year against a $30 billion gross capex spend, right? These are on different scales at that level. And that's what our semiconductor co-investment program is about, right, is where, you know, Brookfield basically came in and they're helping to capitalize $15 billion of the Arizona site. It's just at a different scale of uh, investment. And we've said to investors that, hey, you know, this is a multi-year journey, right? And, you know, as you know, people have commented on, the Intel stock hasn't performed very well. And we know that investors who believe in our vision, right, you know, but it's going to take a while to get there. So essentially, the dividend provides some level of continuity of total shareholder return, even over this period that I've called the saddle. We just got a couple of years until process leadership, product leadership, and capital is in place. So that's why we've you know, held the dividend policy, but we immediately curtailed any buybacks. Right? You know, so, boom, buybacks, done. Right? You know, we have to invest in the capital uh, going forward. And that's how we position it to analysts and investors. And you know, I've had numerous conversations with them on uh, this uh, journey, you know, and most of them think, okay, that's the right balance, you know, but, you know, because they haven't seen that total shareholder return that they would expect, partially because, hey, we are investing super heavily to establish the position that we need for both leadership technology and capacity as we go to the second half of the decade. We have to take another break, but when we come back, we're talking about Intel's new CPUs and GPUs. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. 
Book your stay today at LQ.com. We're back. You announced new products this week, new GPUs and new CPUs. GPUs are kind of the highlight here. The Arc GPUs have finally been announced. It took a long time. That's a product line you inherited, as you said. Performance-wise, they match uh, NVIDIA's RTX 3060s, which came out in 2020. And NVIDIA just announced, what, the 4090s? Well, 7070s are much better than the 3060s. Okay. So 770s are going to be very competitive, right? And we put them at a very aggressive price point. You know, 329, we'll have a range of price points associated with them. So, you know, and those are going to reviewers essentially now, right? Yeah. I got one, I'm playing with it. But, you know, so those have gone out now. So <laughs> What's your game of choice to test out a GPU? Well, you know, I'm not much of a gamer. So what I do is I actually got my son who's a big gamer. <laughs> so he, he you But I got to plug it in. I got to boot it up myself. I got to load yeah, the yeah. Windows. But, you know, I mean, you know, I still got to go. Do you build your own PCs? I have help from IT here because of all the security setups. I happen to be, you know, the CEO and maybe a target. So I get the IT guys to go help me. But, you know, trust me, I'm playing regularly. I think I have five (laughs) laptops right at home, you know, as I'm doing different builds. And, you know, I have my favorite laptop of the month and I'm getting the Unison build that we just announced as well. So we're getting that that installed. But anyway, all of those things. I am definitely a geek's geek, but I I, I do have a lot of things that pull my time away from uh, being as geeky as I would like. No, I, I feel you. Um, when do you think you're going to match the performance of these of the NVIDIA 4090s? You know, when we said October 12th for the launch date uh, with the A770s, we'll let the reviewers speak as they uh, look at that. But we're pretty satisfied with the performance that we're seeing in our uh, labs. And obviously, we put them at an aggressive price point. You know, So I think the performance price characteristics that we're expecting the reviewers to come back with to be very favorable. You've also announced the 13th generation processors. We just reviewed Well, the, the other thing before we leave that, before we leave the graphics one, you know, because we've also now also released the GPUs, right? You know, the data center GPU version as well. And, you know, what used to be called Arctic Sound. So that's now available as well. So you have the discrete graphics as well as the data center version of those uh, products. Hardware-based AV1, you know, multi-thing. We can do inference and video processing on simultaneous streams. We've had some great, you know, demonstrations of that. So, you know, overall, you know, that that's the pair. And then the high-performance computing, you know, with Ponte Vecchio. So to me, there's a continuity from integrated to discrete to data center GPU, to HPC. You know, we now have the full suite of those available in the fourth quarter of the year. So that's really what I've been working for is, you know, getting those in place. So you have the client leverage, right, between integrated and discrete. And then you have the data center uh, leverage from discrete to GPU, and then the leverage into the high-performance computing. Because, you know, like with our uh, Argonne National Labs, we're, you know, combining Sapphire with high bandwidth memory, you know, with the uh, GPU. So that whole family is now, uh, you know, available or will be available shortly. That's like been a long time coming, right? I mean, that's that's a long road. You're finally here. Um, it's it's got to be here. it's got to be proven out. I, I think that's just a fair assessment. You've got to prove that out. Absolutely, it's going to go compete with Nvidia. Yeah, and, w- and one little fun little story there for you. Know, like when I uh, left Intel uh, twelve years ago, you know, I had taken the data center job right at the time. And I had made a list of 10 things I was going to get done, right? And in five years, I finished nine out of 10. The one that I didn't have finished, discrete graphics. (laughs) So 
I'm now finishing that one that I started 12 <laughs> years ago. So now we're getting it done. And hey, Gen 2 will get better. Gen 3 will get better. You know, the software more robust, more ISV enabling, uh, more refinements of the uh, hardware. But you know, I'm very happy that we now have all elements of the family shipping. The ISV piece is actually the part I was going to ask about, right? We've seen over and over again in GPUs in particular, the developers are going to support what the consumers have. The consumers are going to buy what the developers support. You've got to kick off that flywheel where you get people to buy into your, your drivers, your APIs, all that sort of thing. How is that going for you? I mean, that was part of why the launches earlier in the year and some of the lower-end graphics weren't as successful, because the software wasn't as robust. The drivers weren't uh, cleaned up yet. They weren't performant. We didn't have game compatibility in a number of places. So, you know, it's been a rough year, right, to get those pieces put in place. You know, we think now that we're uh, largely done with that work, and I would say the vast majority of games are validated. Drivers are there, you know, across both uh, Windows as well as uh, Linux embodiments. So, you know, I feel like we're pretty good. Part of this week with our innovation conference was a very developer-centric set of uh, activities. And, you know, when you think about this, you know, people have been optimizing for NVIDIA and to a lesser degree AMD for, you know, the last decade. You know, I don't expect that we're going to show up, you know, and have, you know, 100% compatibility here in day one. You know, it's just a lot of work in those software stacks. But I think, you know, we're now to a point that we have critical mass. You know, we checked most of the boxes and we're getting uh, good responses from uh, developers. But we have to earn our way back into the segment. Again, you know, we, we've not been here for over a decade, right? And a lot has happened over that decade. And, you know, we have to earn our credibility. The flip side of this is not just NVIDIA, but AMD. AMD is in the, you know, the two major consoles, everything except the Switch. It's in the Steam Deck. Ryzen chips per dollar seem to be offering more performance. There's a lot of back and forth between Intel and AMD. Is that just a crown you can take? Or are you saying, look, at the end of the day, we're going to do foundry services. I'm going to get that Intel logo on the side of the fab in Ohio, and it'll be fine. Well, hey, we, we are here to win in this space. Yeah. Make no mistake about it. I'm going to build the fastest high-performance computers in the world. I'm going to build the fastest GPUs in the world. We will build the fastest discrete GPUs in the world, and we will have continuity to our integrated graphics as well. And increasingly, integrated graphics, hey, in a heterogeneous architecture where you have multiple chiplets, you know, hmm, wait till you see Meteor Lake next year. These become uh, you know, quite interesting products, somewhat as uh, Apple has shown. So, you know, I see that continuity and we're going to be very competitive. At the same time, I'm going to be the foundry for NVIDIA. And by the way, they need a more resilient supply chain, right? You know, they need these technologies that we're working on. And uh, hey, I don't know if, how much of it I'll win, but I want to win their business. I want to win Qualcomm's business. I you know, want to win Apple's business. You know, we want to be that provider of a choice. And again, we haven't been in the foundry business. TSMC has perfected that business model for 30 years. They're good at it. And they have an ecosystem around them. I'm not going to displace that, right? But we have to start coming in with unique perspectives, you know, the best transistors with capacity corridors, getting the PDKs and EDA tools and earn the business. And the natural tailwinds work for us, you know, and we're pretty excited. You know, we're getting uh, good momentum and one by one, you know, we're getting more like the MediaTek uh, design win, you know, it was a Great. You know, they are the largest fabless company in Taiwan is committing on the U.S. foundry, you know, company. Hmm. That's pretty nice to see. Uh, you know, Rick Sai, hey, he used to run TSMC, 
right? He's a very helpful customer. His commitment has <laughs> helped teach us how to be a good foundry, right? That's great. Uh, I want to end you once again, by the way, you're very good at this. You've, you've said the key word of my next question. So I want to end by talking about Apple and the M series. But before I do that, I just want to pull back. You're trying to run maybe the most complicated business model of all, right? And we, I see this dynamic play out of kind of every piece of the tech industry where you run the platform and then you want to supply the content on the platform. You run the foundry, but then you want to make the best chips that the foundry makes. And you've got to trade off against your customers there, or you've got to piss off your own company because the customers are actually paying you money. And inside the company, you're not doing the accounting that way. So you're going to go with the external dollars instead of prioritizing yourself. I mean, this plays out every way. Facebook has this problem. YouTube has this problem. Netflix has it. Like over and over again, everywhere you can look in the tech, Google has this problem. Everywhere you look in the tech industry, this plays out. This dynamic of we want to be a service provider for everyone else, but we also want to use our own services to beat those competitors. How are you planning on, on handling this issue? There's a couple of aspects to this. One is I need to create a bit of separation between how we manufacture for others and our own product groups. And I've said, hey, I want these to be auditable boundaries between those, that they can look at the contracts they might do with the TSMC, Samsung, or Global Foundry and say, huh, I get the same contract from Intel. Right, same terms, you know, conditions, protections, right? You know, IP uh, flows, service agreements, you know, capacity corridors, all of those things, and the, you know, and I got to earn my way into that uh, business. But you know, hey, is everybody happy with TSMC the last couple of years when they couldn't satisfy supply? Of course they couldn't, right? You know, I know that, right? You know, people are anxious to have a broader supply chain here, right? So there's a tailwind for us to step into, but we got to earn our business because they have done such a good job as a services uh, company over the last number of years. So we're going to go do that. And my product teams, hey, they use a lot of foundries as well. Part of IDM 2.0 is we use external foundries as well as internal capacity. So to some degree, you know, I got to make this work in both directions and I got to create some, you know, cleaner lines between those so that the external foundry customers, right, can look at us and say, hmm, you know, Intel's a good foundry for me. Now, in doing that, it also makes my own product teams better, right? Because essentially those external customers are demanding us to become a cleaner, more productive, more efficient, you know, foundry as well. And thus I've used the language IDM makes IFS better. IFS makes IDM better. You know, I see it driving us to be better on both sides of the uh, business. So I don't view this in any way as a negative because, hey, if I become a better foundry, you know, for those external customers, they're going to be demanding, you know, better PDKs, better IP libraries, better support for synopsis and cadence, et cetera. And that's going to make my internal design teams more productive and efficient as well. And the more my internal design teams are productive and efficient, they're going to be creating IP that I'm going to monetize for my foundry business as well. So I see it as very much as, you know, if this cycle starts to really work as I hope it does, I think this becomes a very positive cycle for the uh, company. And again, getting there ton of work to go do, right? And in that sense, you know, I agree with the dichotomy that uh, you're pointing to. Yeah, I, I think we just see this play out. Microsoft has Surface products, but they also make Windows and sell Windows to competitors of the Surface team. Like once you see it, it's it's almost everywhere and everyone mm-hmm. manages it differently. 
I don't think I've ever seen it applied to the chip industry itself. So I'm, we'll have to have you back in a year and see how it's going. So I started by mentioning this talk you gave a year ago when you first took over the culture. You took some shots at Apple and the M series there. You said they can't just be the winners all the time. You've now mentioned them again. They're ahead. They're on ARM. The, our last guest was the CEO of ARM, Rene Haas. Do you think you can, with x86, deliver a more compelling product in a laptop than the M series? Of course. Now, that doesn't mean that they're not, they're good, right? You know, I mean, M1 and what Apple's done is good. You know, and I hope at some point that I'm doing better chips than they are. And they say, hey, I want your chips. In the meantime, I hope they become a foundry customer. And they still (laughs) use a lot of my I.O. components. So, I mean, you know, to me, you know, we're trying to earn our way back into their ecosystem. But I have to enable the PC ecosystem to have better products than is done by the Mac. Period. You know, and so, you know, my client group, they have that mission. If your product isn't better than the Mac, and by the way, you know, you go look at Raptor Lake, it's a great product. You know, E-cores, P-cores, the performance, et cetera. You know, we win on numerous benchmarks across the point. This is a great product. So, you know, as people, you know, as, uh, you know, evaluators get their hands on and look at it versus the M1, I think they're going to come out and say, oh, Intel's doing a pretty good job here, baby. And as we said, I think Apple needs uh, broader, more resilient uh, supply chains. And I want to go win their business in that area as well. So we see this as a, a very natural, you know, co-opetition uh, model and uh, one that I'm deeply committed to be successful with them and against them. Do you think Raptor Lake is better performance for Watt than the M-Series today? Yes. Hey, there's a few points that you can say, mm, you know, they, they still do a good job. But as you look across the spectrum, you know, of different power envelopes, Raptor Lake's the best product, period. All right. Well, do me one favor. Just make sure you don't publish graphs without any labels on the axes when you put out the comparisons. That drives me crazy about Apple. Uh, Pat, it was great having you on Decoder. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Very good. Thank you. Thanks again to Pat Gelsinger for taking the time to talk today. Thank you for listening to Decoder. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, I'd love to hear what you think of Decoder. You can email us at decoder at theverge.com or hit me up directly. I'm at Reckless on Twitter. If you like Decoder, please share it with your friends. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you really like the show, hit us with that five-star review. And as many of you have discovered, if you tweet at me about Decoder, I will almost certainly retweet you. Decoder is a production of The Verge and part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. Today's episode was produced by Creighton D. Simone and Jackie McDermott. It was edited by Callie Wright. Decoder Music is by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our senior audio director is Andrew Marino. Our editorial director is Brooke Minters. Our executive producer is Eleanor Donovan. We'll see you next time. More to-dos, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.